At Granger, we're for the ones who specialize in saving the day and for the ones who've mastered the art of keeping business moving. We offer industrial-grade supplies for every industry with same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders, all backed by real people ready to help. So you can get the right answers and products right when you need them. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome into The Verge, a show which covers the Baltimore Orioles minor leagues. The Verge is part of BSL Radio. Baltimore Sports and Life is dedicated to analysis and discussion on the Orioles, Baltimore Ravens, and the University of Maryland. The site has a team of writers providing coverage of those teams and houses live streaming content weekly. Join the conversations at the message board, like BSL on Facebook, and follow BSL on Twitter. Want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily, then distribute it everywhere and even earn money, all in one place for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters, and here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer, so no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. Ever since we discovered Spotify for Podcasters, we feel like having options like video podcasts and Q&A lets us be more creative on another level. I highly recommend you give it a try. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Welcome to On the Verge. This is Zach Spedden, joined as always by Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens. The minor league baseball season is officially in the books, which is why we're going to be joined tonight by Pete Misu the broadcaster for the Norfolk Tides. He's going to come on and recap Norfolk's eventful season for us. But first, I'm going to turn it over to Bob to plug a special event that we have coming up in just about 48 hours. Yeah, so, yeah, in two days from now, it's getting close. We're going to be at Full Tilt Brewing for the final Orioles game of the season. Watch the game live at the bar around 4 o'clock until whenever it's over, and then we'll hang out a little bit, do a live show at 8 o'clock, and uh, maybe we'll hang out a little bit after that too. We'll see how it goes, but... We will have guests John Mioli and Connor Newcomb of Locked On Orioles there, as well as maybe a surprise or two. We'll see. But if you can get out there, we'd love to see you. It'll be at 5604 York Road. It's a pretty cool venue. Looking forward to it. Absolutely. And we'll uh, jump now into tonight's main show. Tonight's guest is a longtime broadcaster for the Norfolk Tides. He is Pete Misu. Pete, how are you? I'm doing well, guys. How are you? Great, and uh, we're glad to have you on because this was a, a pretty interesting season for the Tides. It wasn't always easy, but in the end, they end up with the most wins they've had in any season since 2015, narrowly missed a 500 record. So what was it like to um, see this team play night in and night out this year? Yeah, it was a season of up and downs, as you sort of alluded to. Uh, the team came out of the starting blocks very fast, got up to a great start this year. Uh, got hit by some injuries, uh, a few call-ups, uh, really kind of took a tailspin uh, through the middle of the campaign. And then really about the middle of August, uh, just got absolutely red hot on an incredible tear, which was really amazing because, you know, most of the big name players they had throughout the early part of the year, aside from Jordan Westberg, had all been gone or hurt by that point. And yet they played, uh, they had best record in the East Division over the last month and a half of the season, only Toledo over in the West uh, had a better record 
Uh, as you noted, they almost finished at 500. Uh, probably would have done so had they not run into Durham right there uh, twice over the last six weeks of the year. Uh, finished only two games under 500 uh, and really played well over the last six weeks. Love it. it was, it's nice to sit back and, and like actively want to watch the Norfolk Tides night in and night out because it seemed like this year it was the last two, three years, I feel like more, usually more and more of some of the Orioles' top prospects uh, call Norfolk home. And it's fun to see kind of baseball. I think we talked about this with Adam Pohl a little bit last week, um, how, you know, baseball started to use AAA as, you know, another level of minor league baseball now instead of more like an extension of the bench. But um, you know, I grew up in Hampton Roads area myself, spent a lot of time at Harbor Park, and I know that the Tides have this huge, large, loyal following. But you've been calling Tides games since pretty much since they became an Orioles affiliate. Are you surprised, just generally speaking, how much interest in prospects in minor league baseball seems to explode over the last couple of years? Yeah, it really has been amazing. And this year in particular, probably a year uh, unlike any we have ever seen and probably will ever see again. It is a treat for a minor league fan base to get to see maybe one or two top prospects over the course of an entire year. The Tides in this season alone, as you guys certainly know, had six of the top 100 prospects in all of baseball. We're not talking just the Orioles organization, but all of baseball, six of the top 100 played at Harbor Park just this season. And that's something, you know, we're probably not going to see again. And it was just such a treat for the fans to be able to come out and see whether it's Grayson Rodriguez or Jordan Westberg or Kyle Stowers, uh, you know, and then, of course, at the end of the year, we had all those guys come up from double-A buoy, uh, you know, Connor Norby, you know, leading the way. So uh, you're really uh, amazing the amount of talent we saw on the club, uh, particularly on the offensive side, roll through the season. Yeah, and another one of those guys, Gunnar Henderson, you know, he came through. His rise was one of the biggest stories in the organization this entire year. Why do you think he was able to adjust to AAA so quickly and be successful in the way that he was? Well, I think Gunner is just a, a freak talent, and I don't think the, te- the the level made any difference to him once he got accustomed to it. Now, you guys might remember it. I'm sure you were following along. He and Jordan Westberg came up on the same day when the Tides were on the road in Nashville. Uh, they made their debut on the 8th of June, and Westberg actually got off to a better start than Gunner did. Mm-hmm. Although Gunner played well, but Westberg really came out of the blocks great. It didn't take Gunner, though, very long to get accustomed uh, to the pitching and the speed of the game at the AAA level. And, you know, knowing that he's only 21 years of age, uh, you know, he's just an absolutely amazing talent. And, you know, I think he certainly has proven that he needed very little time even to adjust to the big league level. He is just that special player. Speaking of Jordan Westberg, um, overall, a really strong performance from him in Norfolk, even though he did have a little bit of a slump midseason. You kind of touched on this, got off to a hot start. Then he cooled off a little bit and then really picked things up on the end. How would you evaluate him, not just offensively, but defensively? Yeah, defensively, it's interesting and it's probably difficult from my perspective, you know, as a broadcaster and not a coach, not a scout, not an evaluator. Uh, but just watching from my perspective, of course, here's a guy who came up as a shortstop and like Gunnar Henderson has kind of made it clear that if he had his wish, he would like to stay at shortstop. But like Gunnar, he realizes uh, the more positions he can learn, the more he can become uh, you know, strong at, the better a chance he has of being an everyday player in the big leagues. 
So they played him at three positions. So he never got a chance to get really too settled in. Uh, in fact, the uh, Tides, uh, obviously through the Orioles, uh, made a point of, for the most part, um, not playing him at the same position more than two days in a row. We saw that occasionally, but not often. He'd play short two days, he'd go to third two days, he'd go to second two days, kind of continue that rotation. And I think he handled all the positions very well. Now, just in my mind, you know, I love the way that he looks at second base. Uh, he seems to handle the, you know, the pivots and the double plays very well for a guy who, you know, hasn't come up historically playing that position. Uh, you know, I, I like his range at the position. Probably what I like best about him is that he may not necessarily make as many dazzling plays as somebody else. He almost always makes the routine play. And you hear coaches and, and GMs and scouts talk about that. Yeah, it's nice to make the highlight reel. It's nice to be on Center every night. But we want a guy that's going to make that routine play, that's not going to kick the easy ball, that's not going to make the, the bad throw on a routine out over at first base. And Westberg, I think, did a tremendous job at that. Yeah, that reminds of J.J. Hardy, Mike Bordick, those days in Orioles history. I know we had Tim DeJean on from the Bowie Baselocks before the season started. I know he, I think Westberg gave himself the nickname, was a Mr. Fundamental is what he called himself coming up. So you definitely see that. But you talk about you know, the flashy plays on defense, and you got to watch for a couple of weeks there at the end, Joey Ortiz. Uh, what When you watch Joey Ortiz, just defensively first, when you watch that him play shortstop, um, have you seen many guys at the AAA level or in your time broadcasting over the years play the position as, as flashy and as well as he does? Uh, he's he's phenomenal. He really is incredible at the position. Has great range going both to his left and to his right. Uh, you know, when he needs to make the big strong throw, he can certainly do that. Maybe the only guy in the 16 years since I've been uh, in Northeast that comes to mind for me, although he was an entirely different player, but from a defensive perspective, would probably be Paul Yanish. And you might remember Paul. Yeah. Paul was a guy with a little bit, bit of big league time, but Paul never could really hit well enough uh, to make it as a big leaguer, but he had a tremendous glove. Well, Ortiz is kind of like that defensively, but he's got the bat to go along with it. That'd probably be the only comparison uh, that would come to mind for me. That's impressive. The bat, we know the first couple of months of the year there, I think he struggled to hit above 200 for the first each of the first like three months of the season. But he came up to Norfolk. Did you get a chance to talk to him at all about, you know, uh, kind of his season as a whole, going through the struggles in double-A Bowie, ending Bowie strong and then coming to Norfolk, really coming out of the gates hot and not looking back once he was up there? Yeah, he was really incredible. You look at what he did. You know, you mentioned where he got that hot stretch where he really started, I guess, back beginning of August. Uh, kind of a double A, and then he got the promotion to Norfolk uh, right near the end of the month. Uh, you know, he's a guy who just, at least in the brief time that we saw him, he played 26 games, I believe, uh, with Norfolk, uh, just seemed to jump on mistake pitches and not miss very many of them. Uh, when a pitcher put a ball too far over the middle of the plate, uh, when he made a mistake on a, uh, you know, a, a three and one count, uh, Joey almost always seemed to capitalize on that. Uh, you know, had 14 RBIs in just 26 games, uh, playing with a lineup with a bunch of other guys that were driving in runs as well. Uh, you know, he really impressed me with this bat. And the only question is, can he continue to do it? Uh, obviously, only having had about a month in Norfolk, uh, but looking forward to seeing that uh, if he is back in Norfolk to begin next year and to see if he can continue that trend. 
Yeah, I'm very interested to see that myself. Um, we talked about guys who got off to fast starts, Gunnar Henderson, Jordan Westberg, maybe no one better than Connor Norby. Um, what was it like to see him come in each, just those few weeks? He really made a statement, it feels like. Oh, he was just, you know, he was the best player on the ball club uh, while he was with us and arguably the best player in the league over the last month of the season. And he was that good, uh, you know, just – he just looks like he belongs. He, he's a little bit like Gunner in that regard. Uh, didn't really matter where you put him, uh, where you put him in the in the lineup. Uh, you know, day in and day out, uh, just went out there and you know, just looked like a Triple A guy. And he looks like a guy who is about to take that next step. He just, you know, very comfortable, very confident, very smooth. And then the opposite of that would be Colton Kowser, who got off to a pretty slow start, but then he did finish strong last two yeah. or three weeks or so of the season. But overall, he had one of the best offensive seasons of any Orioles prospect this year. If he does return to AAA next season, which seems likely, what kind of adjustments do you think he'll need to make to be successful there and ultimately make the jump to the major leagues? Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't really get a chance to talk to Colton right at the end of the year about what kind of adjustments he had made with the Tides. But as you said, he got off to a really slow start. I remember at one point his batting average was about 075, 077, right in there. And in just about two weeks, he had added, you know, 150 points or so to that average. Um, he's an interesting guy to watch. It, and I'd love to get an opinion of a coach or someone who's, you know, an expert on swings. Because, you know, being a tall, lanky guy, and he has a lot of foot movement, when he swings, it, it, I even mentioned this on the air a couple of days ago that I'm a big golf fan. So I watch a lot of golf. And if you guys do, you know, the number one player in the world is Scotty Scheffler. And Scotty has a lot of foot action when he swings. It's like his back foot kind of slides forward as he's hitting the golf ball. And I noticed the same thing from Colton that, you know, he takes that cut and his back foot kind of almost slides through the dirt up towards his front foot. And I've never really seen a good player with that kind of, you know, excess motion in his swing, but it works for him. And I'm not saying it's a good thing or a bad thing. I'm not a swing expert. I'm not a former player, so I'm not making any opinion whatsoever about it. So I hope nobody watching or listening gets upset with me about it. I'm not criticizing him. I'm just saying that it jumped out at me, uh, but he kept doing it. And I'm sure he's been doing it his whole life, but he kept swinging the bat. And, you know, after that rough start, you know, he really got hot. So he might be a guy that just needed a few weeks to adjust to the AAA level, get used to the pitching that he was seeing. Uh, you know, guys will tell you that, you know, you're going to see more mistakes down at AA. You're going to see, you know, more fastballs on a 3-1 count at AAA. You know, pitchers, especially guy with big guys with big league time, you know, are more apt to throw you that changeup or that breaking ball, even, you know, 3-0 or 3-1. But he, he got accustomed to it. He adjusted and he finished on a very, very hot note. I think John Mioli had a pretty good uh, newsletter article about the difference between AA and AAA along those same lines. So, yeah, that's very interesting to hear. Just kind of sticking with Kowser for a moment, one of the things that I think everybody had their eye on coming into this year was, you know, will the home run power come around? We know he can hit the ball hard, but will the home run power come around? It didn't at Aberdeen, but then it did in a big way at Bowie, and then we saw it a little bit towards the end at Norfolk. Do you think that with more time at AAA next year, you're going to see some home run power from him? I would think so, just because of the 
you know, the, the, the speed that he generates with his swing. And again, he's got the long arms and the long stride. Um, you know, I, I think that, that the power will come. They have to remember that a Norfolk is not historically a good hitter's ballpark. It is one of the more challenging ballparks in the league, along with the likes of, say, Gwinnett and Jacksonville to hit home runs. Whereas, you know, if he were playing at a place like Durham or Charlotte, you know, he'd probably have had, you know, five more just in the brief time he was with the Tides. So you got to keep that in mind. And Norfolk is not a great hitter's ballpark unless you pull something right down the lines. Um, uh, but I, I think he's a guy that just because of his size and his swing speed, you know, I, I think the power is going to come. So over the last two seasons, and kind of pulling back a little bit here, include 2021 as well, you got to see Adley Rutzman, albeit in kind of limited sample sizes. Can you remember seeing a catching prospect like him before in the International League? No. No. <laughs> I hope that's simple enough for you. No. With a capital N and a capital O. No. Um, you know, everybody raved about Adley, and they continue to rave about him, and rightfully so. Uh, you know, he came in, and obviously he's much more polished uh, than the guys that came in out of the high school ranks, you know, being a little bit older, having come out of Oregon State. Um, but, you know, he understands the offensive approach so well. Uh, I've never seen a player in my time at AAA who had as strong and as firm an idea of what the strike zone is as Adley Rutschman. He would take pitches, I mean, you know, that far off corners, knowing that they were balls. Now, once in a blue moon, he might get rung up because that umpire might have expanded his own. You know, but Adley knew that pitch was off the plate, and he was not going to swing at it. He's a guy who waits for a strike, and when he does, you know, he's got such a powerful, a beautiful swing that he normally takes advantage of it. So from the offensive side, you know, just looks seasoned beyond his years. Uh, you know, defensively, you know, I hear pitchers and pitching coaches rave about the way that he calls a game, uh, the way that he handles things behind the plate, uh, does a lot of those little things, a lot of little nuances uh, that, you know, we as broadcasters and we as fans, you know, probably don't even notice. I would talk with pitchers about, you know, what they do between innings. And, and he would tell me about, you know, how Adley comes in and, and they go over a, a specific approach uh, to a specific guy. You know, and he's always thinking ahead. It's not just about the next batter. He's thinking, you know, three batters ahead or two innings ahead. You know, he has that mindset. Uh, he's not only a great physical talent, uh, but he has a great, you know, mental side of the game as well. I love, it. I love watching him and Gunner. Thought that was mine right there. Is that going up? Uh, I love I love watching him and Gunner just at the major leagues already making a big making a big impact as well. But. On the flip side of that, talk about someone who was with Norfolk for much of the year and someone who Orioles fans have had high hopes for for a while now since he was a major part of this Manny Machado trade back in 2018, but Yusniel Diaz. Uh, and kind of he got the one plate appearance this year in the major leagues, but other than that, it was another year of injuries and up and down. He definitely had his moments out there, but up and down play on the field. Uh, in your interactions with him or in talking with coaches, did you get a sense that he was – as frustrated as fans have been waiting for that breakout and big league opportunity to, to come to him? Yeah, I, if he's frustrated personally, he never expressed that. Uh, I never saw that um, uh, other than occasionally in his body language. I could probably pick that up on occasion. 
but it's funny, I was thinking about uh, Diaz earlier today, and I thought, you know, the guys are going to ask me about Diaz on the show tonight. <laughs> I just had that feeling. And, and he's a guy, as you noted, you know, he was really the linchpin of that Machado trade. You know, they got, what, five guys in that deal, and he was supposed to be the number one guy. And I really thought this year might be a breakthrough for him. He got off to a great start, was hitting over 320 before he had the first stint on the injured list, uh, came back from that, got hurt again. Once he finally got healthy, just never really seemed to, to find that groove again. You know, he's a guy who, who certainly has those flashes of brilliance, but has never been able to put it together over an extended period of time. Um, you know, he's got a big swing, a powerful swing. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure how willing he is at times you know, maybe to, to cut down on that a little bit for the sake of batting average, trying to hit home runs a lot. You know, he, he's kind of a, a similar guy in the field. Uh, he has a, a phenomenal arm. You know, he shows that arm off, but sometimes it seems like he's almost willing or, or desires to show that arm off when it means airmailing a cutoff man, <laughs> which isn't necessarily the best play, you know, every time. So, you know, I would certainly say that, you know, there have been – those that are frustrated with him uh, and he might well fall into that category himself. And I, I hope, you know, he gets an opportunity, but, you know, I look at what the Orioles have right now in the outfield with the people that they have there already. And w- with those that they have, you know, coming up through the organization, obviously we talked about Colton Kowser already. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure where or how he fits or even if he g- gets a chance on, on more than just a piecemeal basis to fit into that system. Yeah, I think we agree with that. But thank goodness for Dean Kramer, who might be the most improved player in the majors this year. Could you tell, I know he only made a few brief rehab appearances for you guys, maybe even just one with Norfolk, but could you tell that he was different mentally uh, just from last year where he struggled a bit, even when he was with AAA? Yeah, he looked incredible. Just again, in the very brief time that we saw him, uh, when he came in, it's weird with some of these pitchers how – we'll see some of these guys for a couple of years and they never really look like, you know, they've got the makeup uh, to make that transition from triple a to the big leagues. And then something clicks, they find something, whether it's mentally or physically. And that seemed to be the case with Dean, you know, Kyle Bradish is another guy. When he got called up at the beginning of the year, frankly, I didn't think he was going to be in the big leagues that long. I thought he'll go up there and, make a few starts, maybe be an up and down guy throughout the course of the year. And, you know, he ended up pitching, you know, pretty well for the Orioles this year. Uh, You know, Mike Bauman's another guy who, you know, got up to just a terrible start this year in Norfolk, Um, you know, and then something for him clicked late in the season. And he really, from about the midway point of the year on with the tides was really, really good. And I think he's somebody you know, I know obviously he's finishing up the year with the Orioles and, and maybe next year he'll, you know, be one of those permanent fixture guys as well. Yeah, I could certainly see that. But back to the outfield again, Robert Newstrom, he was a guy we thought that may have been added to the 40 man roster last offseason to be protected from the rule five draft that ended up not happening. So it didn't really matter. But in the end, he, he was not protected and he had a fairly disappointing season considering the year he had last year and expectations coming into the season. He still has legitimate power. He can hit the ball as far as anyone and pretty good strikeout and walk rates. But do you ever see him getting a shot in the major leagues at some point? 
Yeah, I, I don't know. Renewstrom is a guy who obviously was pretty much an everyday player throughout most of the year, really until right near the end of the season. Uh, you know, when, when those guys came up from double from A, and obviously Kowser became an everyday player. Brett Phillips was almost an everyday player with us. And that really kind of left, you know, Newstrom and Diaz, in addition to the likes of Richie Martin and even Caden Grenier, just kind of fighting for that other outfield spot on an every other day or every third day basis. Um, you know, Robert works as hard as anybody on the ball club. I could probably say that, you know, I probably talk with Robert probably as much uh, as anybody on the club. Maybe one or two other guys kind of fit into that group that I would really kind of go to to get opinions. And, you know, for a guy that played over 100 games, 15 home runs, 61 RBIs, all pretty solid numbers. You know, you mentioned the strikeout to walk ratio. He only struck out 69 times in 101 games, which, you know, in the way that baseball is played today, that's pretty good. But uh, again, I would say the same thing about him that I just said about Yusniel Diaz. You know, when I look at what the Orioles have, and I don't know all the contract situations in Baltimore, you guys are probably better in tune with that than I am. But when I look at, you know, Cedric Mullins and, and Austin Hayes and, you know, you know McKenna's your fourth guy, and I got Stowers up there now, and, you know, if Santander is back, and then you got Cowser waiting in the wings, I just ask myself, you know, where and how does Robert Newstrom get a chance? Yeah, and that's a good point because every outfielder you just mentioned has multiple years of team control remaining at the major league level. And you've had kind of a, a an up-close view of this, which is how much the depth of the organization has evolved. Um, we've seen seen that with the outfield. And now we're starting to see with the infield a little bit where you have Gunnar Henderson already in the majors. You have Jordan Westberg, Connor Norby, Joey Ortiz. Do you think that puts more pressure on the players in Norfolk knowing that that chance for the majors is narrower because there are better players around them. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I, I kind of hearken back to the old, you know, adage, uh, you know, that, you know, pressure is a privilege and there is pressure on the likes of Connor Norby and Joey Ortiz and Colton Cowser and all of these young players coming up. And obviously Gunner, even though he's already there and has success, there's pressure on him and why is there pressure? Because they're good players, and a lot is expected of them. There's not a whole lot of pressure on the guy that's you know, sitting at the end of the bench and is only going to play every fourth day when somebody needs a day off. It's the guys that are going to go out there every day and are being expected you know, to lead the Orioles into this next step. Obviously, they took a huge step this year, you know, coming so close to a playoff berth. Uh, you know, finishing with a winning record, surpassing pretty much everybody's expectations. And now those new players know that the pressure is on them and they're going to have to jump up there and they're going to have to join eventually the likes of Gunner and Adley Rutschman and, uh, you know, Kyle Stowers and the other guys that came up from Norfolk this season and, uh, you know, lead the Orioles to the next level, which, of course, is a playoff berth. And a guy that a lot of fans and certainly a lot of people inside the organization see as being part of that is Grayson Rodriguez. He was probably the best pitching prospect in baseball before he got hurt. You had a chance to see him before and after the injury. Just kind of give us a sense of your thoughts, um, how he pitches the hole, and then how he looked there at the end as he was coming back. You know, I thought when Grayson came back for the injury and being out for three months and then only having had, I believe, three prior appearances uh, at the lower ranks before rejoining Norfolk, I thought he looked almost um, as he did 
before the injury. Obviously, you know, I think a lot of us in Norfolk, you know, were really thinking when he got hurt on that night of June the 1st, uh, a lot of us really thought we were seeing Grayson Rodriguez for the last time. We really thought that, you know, he was probably going to get called up after that game, assuming he just had the same kind of start that he had been having all year. You know, up there leading the league or near the top of the league in strikeouts, near the top of the league in ERA, you know, had a, a great win-loss record. Um, you know, and he's a guy who I always like to describe Grayson Rodriguez as a pitcher and not a thrower. You see a lot of guys who are throwers and they have to learn to become pitchers. You know, I kind of put D.L. Hall into that group. But Grayson, I mean, you know, he not only has the physical tools, but he knows how to pitch. And he knows how to get guys out. And whether that means throwing a 98-mile-an-hour fastball or throwing an 82-mile-an-hour changeup, he doesn't care. He's not out to be flashy. He's out to get guys out. Now, of course, he tends to be flashy because he has so much talent. But, uh, you know, I think Grayson Rodriguez, you know, 2.20 ERA. Uh, before he had the injury, he had one bad appearance with Norfolk mm-hmm. the whole year. And that was a, a day game down in Gwinnett where I remember I gave up like five runs. Not that that's horrendous, but he gave up five runs. That was the only bad outing he had. Uh, came back with the Tides. I know I think it was his next to last appearance uh, down in Durham. You know, didn't quite have his stuff, and he still pitched pretty well. And I think that's one of the things about Grayson, that you watch him, and even if he doesn't have his absolute A game, he's still good enough to give you a chance to win. And that's, you know... That's what special players do. That's what Adley Rutschman does and Gunnar Henderson do on the offensive side and when they're in field playing defense. And I think that's what Grayson does and will do eventually for the Orioles on the pitching side. Love it. I know a lot of fans are looking at Wednesday, that last day of the season, that TBA currently pitching for the Orioles and hoping it's Grayson. But we'll see. Regardless, 2023 opening day, I think he's in the rotation. And I do agree. I thought that inning he got hurt was probably his final inning in Norfolk. It was unfortunate the way the season ended up playing out. But some other pitchers that rolled through Norfolk, um, you didn't get to see too much of them. You get to see more of Drew Rom, for instance, uh, and uh, recently named Orioles minor league pitcher of the year, Ryan Watson, also ended the year in Norfolk. Um, what did you see out of, of those two guys specifically as the year wrapped up? Yeah, Drew was interesting. He joined us and his first four or five starts, he looked phenomenal. I mean, just, you know, coming there from the left side, uh, you know, had every pitch, kept guys off balance, uh, good strikeout numbers. And then, you know, he really kind of tailed off there in his last several appearances. So I'm really interested to see, you know, if he's back with the Tides next year, you know, what we get out of him and and what was the real Drew Robb uh, that we saw again, not having had him you know, quite long enough really to to tell at our level. As for Ryan Watson, you know, I I was a little bit stunned when I saw the announcement that he was the organization's (laughs) minor league pitcher of the year, not saying that he didn't deserve it, uh, but he really was not put in an opportunity with the Tides where he was given, you know, those big moments, those big innings. He only pitched 12 out of third innings uh, in seven appearances with the Tides. He was kind of like a a seventh, maybe occasionally an eighth inning guy coming into a game. Uh, but obviously, you know, he's still young at 24, you know, big, strong guy, uh, throws pretty hard, uh, but just really did not get uh, enough of a look at him. Uh, he had eight strikeouts and 12 and a third um, with eight walks as well. So, you know, honestly, to me, he, he looked like a, 
a guy who's kind of coming up and learning the AAA ranks, but you know, I, I just don't know enough about him to know, you know, how good he will be or can be. Yeah, I do wonder if he was kind of tiring out towards the end of the year, reaching his innings limit, because he was a starter the whole time, and Bowie did pretty well. But, yeah, I mean, we'll see. That's that's what it's all about. You learn from your failures more than your successes. Right. How about the bullpen, though, in Norfolk? <laughs> Shout out to Nick Vespi, who ended up pitching, <laughs> what, 25 and two-thirds, something like that. Oh, no earned runs allowed, and pitched pretty well in the majors when he was with the Orioles as well. What did you make of that great season he had? It was, uh, you know, uh, unlike anything I've seen uh, for, for Nick. It, and frankly, I was just amazed. Every time he came back from Baltimore, I would walk up to him and I would say, you know, what what the heck are you doing here? <laughs> um, you know, you're too good to be here. Uh, the guy ended up throwing, in fact, 28 and two-thirds innings That's with Norfolk this year. Only allowed 12 hits. Uh, no earned runs. Um, he only gave up. I'm trying to remember. It was either, I believe it was three hits to left-handed batters for the year. And if I remember, it was either one or two of those were infield singles. I mean, he's just absolutely dominating. Um, you know, and it was great to have him because, frankly, for the most part, uh, besides Nick and to a degree, you know, maybe Cole Huvala at the back end of the bullpen, it was a, a tough year for the pitching staff and especially a tough year for the bullpen. You know, this is a Norfolk team that, you know, I, I think could have contended you know, you look, obviously, Durham just won the AAA National Championship. Norfolk's offense was better than Durham's this year. But, you know, the pitching had a rough year. The Tides finished. It was either last or next to last in the league in ERA. You know, and it would have, unfortunately, been a lot worse had it not been for the likes, you know, of a Nick Vespi. He was uh, just absolutely incredible. And, you know, like I said, I was just amazed every time they sent it back. And I understand, you know, manipulating the roster when you've You've got options, and you, you you need to bring a guy up to fill a hole. But you know, Nick, I think is a guy who certainly has earned you know the opportunity at least to become a full time big leaguer, and hopefully that'll be the case for him next year. Yeah, I have a feeling he'll start the year in the majors, and hopefully, I think he's got the talent to stick there all year next year. But you, there were some guys like Tim Naughton started really hot, and then he kind of faded away. Ryan Conroy really pitched well, and then kind of faltered towards the end of the year. But Cole. Uvila was a, was one of the steady presences that, that you just talked about in the bullpen. Outside of a rough June, he was pretty effective all season. Were you surprised he didn't get a shot at the major leagues? I, I, I was. Um, I remember doing a couple of interviews with some Baltimore media uh, at the beginning of the year, and they were asking me about you know somebody on the club who I thought could have an impact with uh, the Orioles uh, among the pitchers, and Cole Uvila was the first guy that I named. Um, you know, he was the closer for the most part with the Tides, had 12 saves. I believe only one blown save, if I remember, throughout the year. You know, a good but not a great ERA at 3.48. Um, you know, averaging about a strikeout per inning. Walks occasionally, maybe a little more than he would like. Only about a 2-to-1 strikeout-to-walk ratio. Probably going to need to be better than that. Uh, so Cole's a guy now at the age of 28. Um, you know, probably is going to have to make that improvement and do it in a hurry mm -hmm. uh, to get a chance, you know, at the big league level. I, I think he's definitely what you might, you know, term that proverbial 4A guy. Uh, I'm hoping he could be a major league guy, but, you know, I'm not sure if he was quite good enough this year. So when we've uh, had fellow broadcasters uh, in the organization like Sam Zelenick and Adam Pohl on, they've highlighted veterans like 
Daniel Reyes and Ty Block and sort of the impact that they've had in the clubhouse and on the younger players in particular. Uh, you had Reyes there this year, but then you also saw DJ Stewart and Matt Harvey for significant chunks of time in Norfolk. Um, what kind of impact do you think they had on the younger players? You know, it's fun. Those guys, it's a, was a ball club that did have a lot of youth. Um, you know, I look at a guy like Reyes and, you know, he, he was interesting because he, he had those moments when he looked really, really good and then just didn't quite seem to put it together. Um, yeah, as, as far as a clubhouse presence, that's really tough for me to tell. Um, you know, I'm not sure if I could really, really say about the clubhouse presence for guys like that. I talked with a few guys. Um, you know, I think it's a club that that really seemed to go about its business pretty well. Um, I almost tended to look at, at, you know, at least among pitchers, somebody like a, a Logan Allen, who, of course, was released late in the season. Um, you know, I, I think a player like that really had maybe more of a, a dramatic impact as a leader both in the clubhouse and down there on the bullpen uh, than some of those other guys you noted. Were there any other, you get to watch this team night in and night out. And were there any guys that you watched nightly that impressed you, stood out, you felt maybe were, were overlooked by, you know, us and some others out there, you know, guys that didn't get the love that you felt like that, that's a good ball player. And you feel like they deserve maybe a little bit more credit this year. That's a good question. Um, well, I'll tell you one guy and I've, you know, maybe you guys have talked with some people that have a little more insight into it. You know, it was Marcus Diplod, and I know he had time at the big league level, and he was always great with Norfolk. I had a about a two-even ERA. I know he had time at the big league level. You know, I know a lot of us were kind of looking at one another, you know, when the word came down that he had been released. Like, you know, what's going on here? And obviously, we know, a lot of things happen behind scenes, you know, with agents and players and, and, you know, or maybe they just felt that, you know, he wasn't going to be a fit, but he's only 25 years old. Uh, so there was a guy who I really kind of, you know, still to this day wondering j- just what happened, you know, with Marcos Diplod, uh, mm-hmm. you know, to, to prompt his release. So there's a name that kind of quickly jumps out at me, at least among the pitchers. On the offensive side, hmm. How about yeah, a girl? Greg Cullen, was he a guy that seemed like by the end of the year, he put up some pretty good numbers, even though, you know, he was never any loud tools or anything. Yeah, Greg Cullen, when he first came up from double A, my first impression was, here's a guy who shouldn't be here. (laughs) We just need a body right now. Bring him up. You can toss him in, let him play when somebody needs a day off or somebody's been called up or somebody's hurt. And he didn't produce. And he went back to double A and then he came back up late in the season and he was an entirely different player. Um, He just hit the ball hard almost every at bat. He had a great eye. Uh, He was drawing a lot more walks late in the season, not striking out as much. Uh, And again, he's kind of a nondescript guy in that he's not going to hit, you know, for power like, you know, like Henderson and, and Westberg and Kowser. You know, and he's not going to steal 25 bases and he's not going to, you know, be a gold glove guy in the field, but he can go out there. You can put him at second base. You can put him at third base. Uh, you can bat him, you know, seventh, eighth, ninth in your batting order. And he hit well over 300 with the tides in his second stint. Uh, so there's a guy who certainly was not getting any attention at all. And, and understandably, 
you know, with, with Norby and Kowser and, and, and Ortiz and those guys on the uh, roster. But, you know, I, I think he certainly has earned an opportunity uh, to come back to Norfolk and at least answer the question, you know, is Greg Cullen for real? Yes. What about, I had one more question. Uh, one thing that I've been fascinated with as the season progressed is the coaching staffs at all levels, um, because what they've done with some of these prospects and the player development process as a whole, we're watching it play out here, and it's we've seen some phenomenal success stories. Uh, can you give us some insight into Buck Britton, the manager, kind of who he is, maybe on and off the field a little bit from your conversations with him? Well, you know, every player that I've talked to and you know, just loves Buck, loves his approach. Uh, Buck is probably more of a hands-on manager than any that I've encountered, not only with the Tides, but throughout, you know, my minor league career. I mean, Buck does everything. He is out there. He wants to throw a batting practice every day. He wants to hit fungos every day. He wants to work on defensive drills with guys every day. You know, then he wants to you know, go out in the outfield and talk to pitchers during BP. Um, you know, he is as hands-on as anybody uh, uh, that I've ever dealt with uh, for a manager at, at the minor league level. The fact that Buck is still young, I believe Buck is 36. So he is still close enough in age to the players that he can still very much relate to them. Uh, the fact that his playing career, you know, only ended recently, you know, gives him a perspective that he can offer to players that perhaps, you know, a, a Ron Johnson or a Gary Kendall who preceded Buck could not. Um, so, you know, I, I think that gives Buck a very promising future. Uh, obviously, he wants to coach third base. Uh, you know, first Tides manager that, you know, since I've been there that has coached third base. They've always worked from the dugout in Norfolk. But, you know, Buck wants to, you know, he told me early in the year, he said, if we're going to get a guy thrown out at the plate, you know, I want to be the guy responsible for it. I don't want to be in the dugout, you know, thinking I would have held him or I would have sent him. I want to make that call myself. And uh, uh, so he's very involved. Yeah, I mean, guys get into the ballpark at, you know, 11, 11, 30 in the morning for a seven o'clock game at night, you know, and stick it around for a couple of hours after the game. Uh, so, you know, just really phenomenal the way that he handles the club. Uh, he's very upfront with the players, you know, letting guys know what's expected of them what their role is going to be, what the Orioles want their role to be. And then, of course, the responsibility they designates to the rest of the staff. You know, I mean, I remember, it wasn't all that long ago, we would have three coaches uh, in Norfolk. And I know this is kind of the same thing around a, you know, the minor leagues as a whole. You know, we had a manager and a pitching coach and a hitting coach, and that was it. And you had one trainer and one strength guy. Well, now you've got, you know, five, six coaches You've got a video guy. You've got multiple trainers and a strength guy as well. And, you know, and Buck is more than happy, even though he's very involved, uh, to you know give his staff members responsibility and to entrust them, you know, to do their job. So you know, I have nothing but wonderful things uh, to say about Buck. And obviously, the Orioles must think a lot of them the way they've moved him up uh, so quickly through the organization. And you know, I could certainly see him, you know, probably in the in the near future, whether it's, you know, three, four, five years down the road, probably on a, a big league staff as a coach somewhere. I was going to say, did you, you have to remember calling his games just, what, 2014, right. 2015, he was a player with Norfolk. And to see him as a coach already, a manager for the Tides already, is, uh, I think that speaks volumes as to Buck Britton. Yeah, it really does. 
One question that comes to mind for me, we had Justin Ramsey on our show very early in the season. Mm -hmm. And when he was on, he had nothing but praise for the core group of catchers that the Tides had at that time. Now, it turned over later in the year, but, you know, ultimately Norfolk ends up with Jacob Nottingham and Anthony Bemboom catching the most games for them. What did you see from those two guys and how they worked with the pitching staff, how they called the game? And, you know, they're both catchers with big league experience. Could you see them back there in some capacity next year? Yeah, I, I'm, I wonder what the Orioles are thinking about those guys. The fact that, you know, obviously Anthony began the year at the big league level, uh, you know, came down when you know Adley Rutschman got the call up and never got back again. Uh, obviously, Anthony really impresses me defensively. Uh, you know, the way that he calls a game, especially the way that he controls the running game. Phenomenal at that. Uh, his footwork, his release, his accuracy with his arm, uh, really good at holding runners at bay and, and keeping the running game uh, in check for the opposing team. Uh, Nottingham on the other side, probably a little more of an offensive guy. Uh, had 15 home runs, 51 RBIs this year. Uh, he's an absolute warrior behind the plate. I've never seen a catcher get beat up every single night uh, the way that Jacob Nottingham got beat up. And I use beat up. That's a, a pretty light term for some of the things that I saw happen uh, to Jacob Nottingham. It seemed like no matter where you put him in the field, obviously he played some first base when he wasn't catching, and he would just get destroyed by foul balls, by foul tips, or getting hit by pitches when he was at the plate, and he would just come back night after night after night. Uh, in fact, when he finally went on the IL, I guess with about a month, five weeks to go in the season, and I saw him, and I said, you know, I kind of jokingly said, you know, what's happened? You're the, you're the Iron Man. You don't get knocked out of games. And he said, yeah, it finally got me, and he got a concussion, and he was out for about 10 or 12 days. Uh, but, you know, he's a guy and, you know, I'm not sure what his thinking is. The fact that he never got a chance, you know, and obviously anybody who's a catcher knows that in the Orioles organization right now, there's only one spot available at the big league level. And that's to, you know, fight for the backup role to Adley Rutschman because it's his job. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know if we'll see Nottingham back. You know, I'd love he I know he'd love to get a chance back to the big leagues, having had prior time with Seattle and Milwaukee. Um, so, you know, I'd love to have him back. But it wouldn't surprise me if he's, you know, looking for an opportunity elsewhere where, you know, the, the avenue to the big leagues might be a little more open. I'll, I'll wrap up here with a big name prospect we actually have not talked about tonight. And that's Kyle Stowers. You had a long opportunity to see him in Norfolk. The depth of the major league level was one of the reasons why the Orioles didn't call him up for good until August. Um, but how did you see him develop over the course of the year? Were there things that you didn't think that he – well, even going back to last year, were there things that you thought he struggled with initially that he improved in, in those areas as time went on? Um, he, he did improve. Um, you know, I, I think, and I certainly agree with you, the fact that, number one, I'll say Kyle Stowers, to me, was the Norfolk Tides MVP this season. Uh, you know, 19 home runs, 78 RBIs. You know, I know that the strikeout numbers are something uh, that he wanted to work on. You know, 104 strikeouts in 95 games this year. Not a terrible number, but, you know, he'd like to work on that, maybe get the walk numbers up a little bit more. You know, I think he'd like to get the batting average up a little bit higher. He hit 264 in Norfolk, which is not bad, uh, but I think he's the kind of guy who could probably be a 275 or 280 hitter at this level. Um, 
and hopefully, you know, something close to that at the big league level, you know, but I saw, I, I think I saw mental improvement um, from Kyle, even more so than on the physical side this year. And probably because he didn't get that call up. Everyone kept watching him, you know, produce offensively on almost a nightly basis. And, you know, we went through May and June and July and the big league call never caught, never came for him. And, you know, he understood, and we certainly understood, you know, the reason why is that there simply wasn't an opening there for him to get up. And I know talking with Mike Elias, you know, he had told me, we don't want to call Kyle Stowers up to have him sitting on the bench and playing every third or fourth day. We want to bring him up when there's an opportunity that he can play every day. And that chance really did not come, as you said, uh, until August. But, you know, I think the fact that he never at least let on that he was frustrated or disappointed. If he was, I certainly never saw it. He did his work. You know, he battled. He went out there and played hard every day, both on the offensive and the defensive side, and just remained patient until that time came for him. Uh, So I would almost say I'm more impressed with, you know, what he did, you know, mentally uh, in dealing with the long ride of a triple-A season until the big league call came. Uh, than even his physical and, and his offensive talents in their development. Well, Pete, we really appreciate your insight and for you joining us tonight. And um, I guess now you, you go in the off-season, right? Yeah, that's right. Off-season mode right now. And uh, you know, I was joking with you as before we started, you know, I already got March 31st circled on the calendar. That's opening day next season. Uh, getting things started earlier than ever before at the uh, International League level on the road in Durham against the defending uh, AAA national champions, uh, two-time defending champions. Uh, so looking forward to that. And, you know, again, with all the, the young players, I, I don't know about Westberg. I would think he would have a great chance to make the club uh, in Baltimore out of camp next year. But I see the young guys like Ortiz and, and Norby and Kowser that haven't had much AAA time. I would think they probably need more seasoning uh, to have them back. And I know we've got some good guys at AA. And, you know, if they get a little more pitching at this, uh, you know, at this level, uh, with the Tides next year, uh, I think could be a very, very exciting ball club. Yeah, I think you're going to be happy with the results. <laughs> That's my prediction. Sorry, Zach. <laughs> we look forward to hearing you on the call again next season. Uh, thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thank you for joining us. Thank you. We will be back on the air Wednesday night, live at Full Tilt Brewing. We're going to try to find a way to record that show and have it out to our listening audience uh, within the next week or so. In the meantime, check out BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com for all the latest covers on the Orioles, the Ravens who can't finish in the fourth quarter, college sports, <laughs> and more. And be sure to hop on the message board there and join and discuss it with fellow readers of the site as well as contributors. And to follow us on Twitter, at PSL on the Verge. We're not slowing down just because the minor league season ends. We'll have plenty of coverage for you there as well as weekly shows throughout the offseason. For Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens, this is Zach Spedden. You've been listening to On the Verge. That'll do it for this week's episode of On The Verge. Be sure to check out our Patreon page where you can help show your support for the show and get bonus content, including monthly top 50 updates to our prospect list and daily game recaps during the season and much, much more. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? 
Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.